This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the podcast, we'll explore the differences between Seattle and L.A.'s music scene by chatting with the musician who moved from L.A. to Seattle. And it just felt like a whole lot warmer than it did in L.A., where it's kind of everyone for themselves mentality down there. And we'll hear from another musician who left Seattle for L.A. You're adjacent to so much success. You know, it does feel like this is where your dreams come true. (laughs) We'll also hear how musicians are gaming the billboard charts in the streaming era. There have been all sorts of creative methods that people have used to attach a so-called album sale to some kind of merchandise that is not actually the album. But first, we're going to hear how streaming has impacted song lengths and the overall structure of songs. I talked with Nate Sloan about this a few weeks ago. He's co-host of Vox's podcast, Switched on Pop. He's also a musicology professor at Southern California University. I started off by asking him what the average length of a song is now and how that's changed over time. Today, the average length of a song, I should be more specific, let's say a a song on the Billboard Hot 100 uh, is about three minutes and 30 seconds long. And was that kind of always the length of a song? Has it kind of stayed about the same throughout time? No, good question. It it has modulated up and down uh, to 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 a great degree. This is actually represents in recent history a drop. Like songs in say the '90s were uh, on average much longer, uh, four minutes plus. So this is seems to be a decline from you know say the last couple decades of of average pop songs. But if you look over like the last century. It's very much in line with this window that pop songs seem to fall into, which is somewhere from two minutes to four minutes. And what determined the length of a song when it came to popular music in the first place? The length of popular music songs is very much connected to technology. And the first technology, the first recording technology, I should say, is the uh, phonograph. And if you think of a, a disc, in the, back then, uh, we're talking, you know, around the, the turn of the 20th century, um, you would have had a disc made out of shellac, and that would spin at 78 RPM uh, revolutions per minute. So we call these 78 RPM records. Um, and those could fit about three and a half minutes of music per side. So three and a half minute song per side. So kind of, and this is, was this before the age of vinyl? Yes, yeah, the age of vinyl starts uh, much later in the 1950s, uh, and that represents another technological shift, the introduction in 1948 of the long playing, uh, or the LP record. And that, uh, unlike the earlier 78 RPM, can fit about 20 minutes of music per side. So in total, on a two-sided record, you can now have about 40 minutes of music that drastically uh, increases the the length possibilities for popular music. And then once we saw the LP, did we see songs get longer at that point in history? It's interesting. Not as you might think. Like, certainly we start to see this whole new genre emerge, like the genre of the album. Think of 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Hearts Hearts Club Band. That's an album, something that never really could have existed before because technology didn't allow it. And we certainly do start to see these long, 
epic uh think of like you know the prog rock of the 1970s like you can have these 10 20 minute epic odysseys for the first time but at the same time if you look at what's dominating uh the the charts if you look at the hot 100 uh songs are actually tend to be very short like if you take the beatles first hit please please me that's only two minutes and one seconds long and that's pretty representative of average song lengths of the hot 100 in the 60s so it's not necessarily a direct correlation. The The invention of the long-playing album makes it possible for you to have longer and longer songs, but what it seems like most people are gravi- gravitating towards are actually shorter and shorter songs. And now we've entered the digital age. We've entered the streaming age, which brings in a whole new level. So how has streaming, like services such as Spotify, impacted song lengths today? Are we seeing shorter song lengths um, because of streaming services? It does seem like the the average length of of pop songs are starting to go down, and it it it's it's very likely that uh, Spotify and other streaming services are the culprit. Uh, a big part of this is is because these services only pay out artists after someone has listened to at least thirty seconds of a track. And uh, they will put your song on uh, playlists and give it further promotion based on if someone listens to the entirety of it. So basically, artists are incentivized to some degree to have more shorter songs and thus uh, get more revenue on a per song basis. Yeah, we saw this with Drake, where he has many, many tracks on an album, say like 25 tracks, and they're all very, very short. So each time someone's listening to that album... They're listening to many tracks, so he's getting more in streaming revenue, correct? Yeah, exactly. Albums uh, are becoming more bloated with more and more tracks, but each of those individual tracks seems to be getting shorter and shorter at the same time. Do you think that, I mean, I guess it's three minutes versus three minutes and 30 seconds. Do you think that streaming services are really having that much of an impact on the music industry? That's a good question. I don't think uh, that's you're right. That's absolutely not a a, a huge decline. Um, But I think what is interesting is that I think we're seeing more short song outliers than we would before. Like, uh, you know, this is according to research by uh, journalists Dan Kopf and Aisha Hassan for uh, the the website Quartz. Um, They they show that six percent of hit songs now uh, are less than two minutes and 30 seconds. So that's kind of interesting because that's a very that's a that's a very brief song to have something less than two minutes and thirty seconds. But it seems like there's going to be more and more of those uh, as Spotify incentivizes it. Like a good example of that is probably what, as of this recording, is the number one song on the Billboard charts: uh, "Old Town Road" by Little Nas X. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche. I've been in a valley, you ain't been up off that porch now. That song, I believe, is in its original version, one minute and fifty-three seconds long. <laughs> so that's um, that's remarkably short. That for a is pop really song. short. And something else that I've been hearing yeah. is that um, some artists have um, also had to think about the format of their songs. We heard um, recently um, a local artist that's on a record label here in Seattle was told by Spotify that they they didn't want to include the song, I believe, on a playlist because the hook of their song didn't come early enough within that particular track. 
Yeah, that is definitely something uh, we're hearing as we listen across the the Billboard charts. Um, more and more songs are starting with a chorus, uh, or they're going right into uh, the first verse without any kind of introduction. The uh, recent hit by the Jonas Brothers called Sucker is, is a nice example of that. It really just starts right with the vocal. Uh, there's no kind of introductory material. We go together. Um, you're also hearing a lot more of what uh, on our show, Switched on Pop, we've decided to call the pop overture, where the artist kind of uh, gives you the, the central hook of the song at the very beginning before proceeding to the first verse. So that's something you hear on like Taylor Swift's recent song, Me. She starts with the hook of that song, I promise you'll never find another like me. I promise that you'll never find another like me. That's the very first thing you hear, and then she goes into the first verse. So it's like, it definitely feels in a way like artists are competing more urgently for our attention, right? Saying, listen to me, listen to me, stick with this, at least for 30 seconds, <laughs> otherwise I won't get paid. Do you think there's a value to having long songs right now, or is is has that been totally, um, you know, disincentivized? Um, I mean, are are people putting out longer tracks these days that are still successful? Absolutely. I don't know if they're successful in the realm of the Billboard Hot 100, but that represents you know a small, very small fraction of the music that's being made. And, you know, just as technology is perhaps changing, shortening, rearranging the form of popular songs, it's also allowing for experiments that may have not been possible before. I mean, you could theoretically have a song now that is like 24 hours long. And as long as you can have a, a way to, to host that much data, like there's no, we don't have the technological limits of 78 rpm record or or a vinyl lp the only limit is essentially now yeah how much how much room you have on your hard drive that was my conversation with nate sloan he's co-host of vox's podcast switched on pop he's also a musicology professor at southern california university he filled us in on how streaming has impacted song lengths and song structures and now we're going to hear how streaming has impacted sales in the billboard charts So sales are directly tied to the Billboard charts. And in an era where people don't really buy albums anymore, artists have kind of found a way to game the system. So in order to boost album sales and therefore get a better chance of getting on the Billboard charts, musicians are combining album downloads with merch or a concert ticket. So this is called bundling. And about half of the 39 titles that topped the Billboard charts last year got there in part because of bundling. So here to talk about bundling and how it's impacting the music industry is Chris Melanthi. He's a chart analyst, pop critic, and host of Hit Parade podcast. Hello, Chris. Hey there, Emily. How are you? So can you break down a little more how bundling works and what it looks like? So basically, as you indicated in your introduction, in an era when albums don't sell very well anymore, the traditional way, meaning going to a store and buying a compact disc, or even we now call this traditional uh, buying a download, you know, that, that is now considered old school. Very few people actually buy an album the old fashioned way, paying about 10 bucks to own uh, a copy of an album. Uh, most people are streaming albums. Uh, however, 
sales of albums now count far more for the Billboard 200, which is the American flagship album chart, than a stream does, understandably. Uh, because, of course, when you stream, you're only streaming one track at a time, and it takes uh, multiple uh, streams to equal the sales of a single album. It takes like so, more than a thousand streams for one album. Yeah, it's it's more than a four to one ratio of a single sale of an album versus a stream of a track. So Billboard, again, they really rely more on album sales, streaming. It's going to take a lot of streams to get the equivalent of an album sale. And so artists then are packaging, you know, merchandise like a hoodie along with an album download or, you know, a ticket to a concert with an album download. What are some other interesting ways you're seeing bundling play out in the music industry? Well, the way this all started about 15 years ago was... um, by the late Prince, uh, packaging his then current album, his 2004 album, Musicology, with a concert ticket. Uh, He was mounting a big tour, and basically he decided right at the start of the tour that every fan who walked into his concert would get a free copy of Musicology. He convinced Billboard that this should count for its album chart. Billboard said yes, this was sort of novel at the time, And pretty quickly, the industry and Billboard came to regret it because if all Prince was doing was giving away a free copy of his album to everybody who walked in the door, whether or not they elected to acquire the album, it didn't really measure the same thing on the album chart that any other kind of album purchase would. So that album, Musicology, you know, sort of ran roughshod over the charts, hanging out in the top 10 and the top 20 for much of the year. And Billboard said, okay, we clearly need a new policy for this. Uh, So they instituted a policy whereby the fan had to exert some kind of volition. Uh, They had to indicate that they actually wanted the album uh, before it would count for the charts. Uh, What that meant back then, when we were still more or less dealing in the world of physical goods, is that um, the album had to be an opt-in of some kind, meaning if you were going to pay $99 for a concert ticket, uh, but maybe you would pay $110 if it included the album, that would count. Uh, But what then happened uh, by the 2010s as we moved deeper into the digital era was that the free CD given out at a concert gave way to the download code. Uh, And you started to see artists basically giving away download codes with their ticket sales. And then what became tricky for Billboard is how do they indicate uh, desire by the consumer to actually consume the album? What Billboard then did was they would only count those who actually uh, redeemed the download code. So even if you had a concert that, let's say, had 20,000 people attending and you gave out 20,000 download codes, but only, I'm making this number up, 2,000 of those people uh, actually downloaded the album, only those 2,000 would count for the album chart. At least then you had some indication of volition, uh, intent, as Billboard liked to say, uh, in acquiring the album. But that has continued to get even murkier as the 2010s have gone on. The other thing that happened in the early 2010s, of course, was that streaming started to take over the charts. Spotify finally came to America in 2011. Billboard began counting it for its charts by 2012. Um, YouTube was added to the Hot 100 and some of its other charts by 2013. And gradually, fewer and fewer people were acquiring albums the traditional way. What I have learned in my research uh, about bundling is that uh, there are now many weeks where traditional sales, old-fashioned sales, 
maybe minuscule. Uh, there are albums that have gone to number one on the Billboard album chart in the last couple of years that have sold the old-fashioned way, fewer than a thousand copies. Um, the overwhelming majority of people are consuming uh, their albums via streams or, to take, to take it back to what we're discussing here, bundling, uh, whereby a so-called sale uh, is attached to a concert ticket, uh, the purchase of some kind of merchandise, a hoodie. Uh, Ariana Grande was giving away uh, a sort of heart-shaped trinket uh, last year when uh, she put her album Sweetener out. The trinket was supposed to give you early access to tickets to her concert tour, not the tickets themselves, just access to the tickets. Um, there have been all sorts of creative methods that people have used uh, to attach a so-called album sale to some kind of merchandise that is not actually the album. But here's the key thing. The math for these bundled sales is the same in billboard math as it would be if you bought it the old fashioned way. This makes it very valuable for artists who are trying to go to number one on the billboard charts because if you're getting that one-to-one -one ratio of a bundled album to a traditionally sold album, it makes it that much likelier that you're going to debut high or even at number one on the Billboard 200 album chart. Which is interesting because it seems like, so when you bundle something, let's say you sell a hoodie with an album download, are people actually paying for the album download or are they paying for the hoodie? Like basically are artists really giving these downloads away just attached to merch? In a way, the answer to all of your questions is yes. <laughs> um, and there has been some philosophical questioning within the music industry over what the album chart even measures anymore. To be fair, what's happened to the album chart just in the last decade is that the connection between consumer intent and the consumption of an album, a full album, has already been broken by streaming. Frankly, it's in the last five years, the second half of the 2010s, that it's turned into the wild west of merch. Everything from Travis Scott offering a range of clothing and, you know, souvenirs and trinkets to Ariana Grande offering, you know, a locket that gives you access to her ticket purchases, but not the actual tickets themselves. And that comes with a download of her album to, you know, the most recent uh, Tyler, the Creator album came with everything from lawn signs to T-shirts. Uh, advertising his album. And all of them are tied to a download. And most of those downloads are deployed in the first week because, of course, as just like opening a blockbuster movie, the music business wants to open a new blockbuster album at the top of the album chart. So I think what, to get back to your original question, what's changed is the fundamental connection between what we used to think of as album consumption and what we now think of as album consumption. Consumption of albums happens mostly digitally and it happens across a range of platforms. Do you think that Billboard charts still matter? I mean, they matter to the music business, definitely. Um, it's like the box office uh, in the movie business. Uh, opening high indicates to people that, you know, this is a popular movie, it's part of the cultural conversation and you want to be a part of it. But yeah, you have to think of the album chart as a fundamentally different beast now than it was even five years ago. I mean, with all, you know, you've been analyzing Billboard charts, do you have any ideas of, of how Billboard should be changing its formula to who gets to the top in this digital age? Well, funnily enough, regardless of what I think, the industry itself actually wants to change some of these rules. Um, and they're the ones benefiting from it. But 
there have been some serious disputes over the last couple of years over, let's call it merch versus merch battles at the top of the charts. Um, and nobody is really sure what the rules are, what should be legal, what should be allowed. Uh, and the music business reportedly has been quietly petitioning Billboard to change its rules on merch. And Billboard is reportedly examining those rules now, probably by the start of the 2020 chart year. Billboard will be instituting new rules on merch, some new, let's call it rules of the road or speed limits, such that people can't just willy-nilly put out any merch tied to an album and have it all count for the charts. So even the, the very people, the artists and managers and record labels that are currently waging war and benefiting from this system, they themselves are, are asking Billboard to change the rules. Well, Chris Melanfi, thank you so much for helping explain how this bundling process works, how it's impacted the music industry here in the digital age. Chris Melanfi is a chart analyst, pop critic, and host of Hit Parade Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Emily. As Seattle continues to grow and get more expensive, we've been seeing more musicians leave the city for Los Angeles. As part of a new series called L.A. versus Seattle, we'll explore the differences between the two music scenes by interviewing a musician who's moved to Seattle, then interview someone who's left Seattle for L.A. Today, we hear from Jen Champion, who left Seattle for L.A. But first, we hear from Jessica Dobson. Dobson has been in the band The Shins, she's played guitar for Beck, and she now sings and plays in her own band called Deep Sea Diver. Dobson was born and raised and started her music career in L.A. and later moved to Seattle. I first asked her why she moved. Well, the literal answer to that is I got married and Peter, who is also the drummer in Deep Sea Diver, is from here. He grew up in Gig Harbor, Tacoma area. And about a year into us being married, he was like, what do you think? And I just started crying. <laughs> like I had no intention of moving here at the time. I have family. I have, my grandma lives on Whidbey Island, but I, you know, would be moving away from everything I knew and all that. And um, he was just like, it's, it's going to be okay. And it ended up being amazing because it was such a cool like reset to, you know, we just kind of started Deep Sea Diver and it was amazing to get like a very fresh start to that. So what kind of work were you doing in L.A. leading up to the move? Well, I was kind of coming off the heels of I had taken a break from doing like solo artist recordings, just going under my own name, Jessica Dobson. And I kind of got my start in L.A. And then I was getting off of Atlantic Records. And then I took a break from music or at least from my own. And so I was just finishing up touring with Beck. I was playing lead guitar for him. And then that ended and then. Peter and I got married. So that's kind of like the, it was just felt like we could kind of do whatever we wanted to, you know, after, after that ended and I just needed a restart. And you had played with the shins as well. That didn't happen until after I moved here, actually. Wow. Yeah. That was 2011, no, 2012. Yeah. So you've been here since when? 2000, well, December of 2011, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So when it comes to just moving here, I mean, obviously it was for personal reasons, but when you moved here, how do you think that impacted your music and the community around music and, I guess, your music career? 
I think I was really lucky to find a lot of musician friends right away, also because Peter grew up here. And so I was kind of naturally adopted into the the music family. And there's so many talented people. And it just felt like a whole lot warmer than it did in L.A., where it's kind of everyone for themselves mentality down there. That's what you generally come across. And here it was just like, let's play house parties, uh, come over for a bonfire, like let's go to Golden Gardens and and have a beer on the beach and just talk and play guitar. It was just a lot more welcoming than than being in L.A. And so we got added on to some shows pretty quickly. And it was just kind of this natural, I don't know, I guess just broadening effect of meeting more and more people in the community. And eventually, you know, a lot of people at KEXP and just... I don't know. Everything was really organic about the whole thing. I always wonder about that because, I mean, obviously things have changed a lot in Seattle in the last 10 years, five years, three years. Um, And often on this show, we talk a lot about the worry of of musicians getting pushed out of the city. That's a real thing. But I mean, from your perspective, coming from L.A., do you feel like Seattle is a welcoming place for musicians? I mean, just within our, you know, how our city government prioritizes things to mm. just the community itself, you know, this issue of affordability in the city. I mean, how do, how do you feel like right. the state is now? And in, in, I mean, especially when you compare it to L.A. Yeah. So I think that there is infrastructure built for uh, the music community in a lot of places like with KEXP and all the work you guys are doing and um, Artist Home. We were talking about Kevin Sir. You know, there there are these kind of champions of this scene, but there's still a lot that we are up against with the tech boom and we literally are getting pushed out of the city. I can't really speak too much to how much like city council is fighting for, you know, music as a culture. And But I, I, I it feels like... There needs to be some kind of rejuvenation into the scene and like, uh, you know, I guess starting with it being affordable to make records here and live here and play shows and for venues to be able to stay open because, I mean, you know, right now we're fighting for the show box and who knows what after that, but... How do you juggle life as a musician here in the city? Or is this a full-time job for you? Are there other things that you have to do in order to be able to live in Seattle and mm-hmm. be a musician in Seattle? Yeah, so to help aid with being in the band, I give music lessons. So I do have to have another job or jobs. And um, I've always kind of been my own boss. But um, just do, yeah, just doing session gigs on, you know, on other people's records. Or I work sometimes on an assembly line for a... I, uh, for canned cocktails. <laughs> I won't plug their name, but um, yeah, just doing stuff that like actually is really lovely for my brain. Like it, it has nothing to do with creativity. It's just like put this can in this box and then tape it. <laughs> like it's actually a nice break from from creative work. So if you if you could choose, I mean now, I mean taking the personal stuff aside, if you could choose, I would rather be a musician in Seattle or a musician in L.A., what would your answer be and why? <sighs> I wish I could blend the two. Um, I think I would still say I would rather be a musician in Seattle because I just don't like music as competition and just the friendly nature of, yeah, the scene up here is just a stark contrast to Los Angeles. Something that I also wonder about is, I mean, would you have more opportunities in L.A.? Probably, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
but it's just a matter of of community and yeah what you value yeah totally i value that more and there yeah i think like some there's like a a false sense sometimes when you go to la that like things are moving and shaking and maybe they are maybe they aren't but um i don't know i it feels a little bit better to be off the beaten path of the business world that was jessica dobson of the band deep sea diver and now let's hear from someone who left Seattle for L.A. I'm Jen Champion. I make some indie pop music, but it wasn't always that way. So how long have you been in L.A. for? I've been here almost two years. What inspired the move? Me and my wife were living on Capitol Hill. This is like 2017. And I've, I had lived there most of my Seattle life on the hill. And I think it was just like, are we going to move to Beacon Hill or Rainier Beach? Like it was like this hill's changing so much that to be an artist and live there was difficult. <laughs> like financially and then just like everything's changing and it's. I think it was like getting kind of sad. And then she got a job offer in LA and was like, do you want to move to LA? (laughs) And it was like, I was like in the middle of recording single writer. And, but aside from that, I was like, yeah. It was a move that you were also interested in, but, but you weren't necessarily like, Seattle's terrible. We have to move. It's changing. Let's go to L.A. It it was also an opportunity that came. You wouldn't have necessarily left if there wasn't another end of the opportunity. I I don't think so. I don't, you know, like I love Seattle and the arts community there. And it is such a cool, just such a cool community that I don't think the thought was to leave that. I think it was just like, I got to find a cheaper place to live. And, you know, like, how do I do this? And just like it seems like a lot of people were kind of like moving off moving out of like the metro area or whatever has la been cheaper than than capitol hill no (laughs) no interesting because because that's something that i think someone had said on kexp that they moved to la from seattle and it was cheaper in la and then everyone was like wait is that actually true (laughs) i think it really depends on where you live you know like la is so huge that it just depends on like what area of town you want to live in and like not even that but like are you close to the metro line are you like everything is like has a weird um way things get expensive like depending on what freeway you're next to or <laughs> whatever it is it's, i've learned a lot living here about how to get places how has it been for you musically? Um, have you been able to get more gigs or, you know, has it enhanced your music career? Has it detracted from your music music career? So how would you describe moving to L.A.? What did it do for you career-wise? For me, I guess I, I've felt really good about it. It's been an opportunity to meet different musicians. And I know that seems kind of weird, but being in the Seattle music scene for many years, like not that I felt like I knew everybody, but I knew and had worked with a lot of people. And so LA just 
I feel like I have this opportunity to meet different musicians doing different stuff. And there is this, I have found it I, a surprisingly people being so open to work together. Like, oh, do you want to co-write a song together? <laughs> you know, and going more into writing and production was kind of something I was interested in. Whereas like playing shows in Los Angeles is a different, seems to be like a different kind of game. If you're in the performance side, because there isn't like an LA music scene, because it's massive, it seems so strange. Coming from Seattle, where like the music scene there is so close knit and it's, you know, relatively smaller. So everybody knows each other and like you probably share a practice space or you're in the same building or you work at the same place or you've toured together or like whatever it is. Like, I just don't find that here. Like, uh, it's like groups of people that kind of know each other or probably play a similar kind of music. Yeah, that's interesting because I was talking to someone else and they were like, you know, the thing about L.A. is it's an industry town. Like, you may have your own band, but you can, let's say, play, you know, for like a a movie score or something like sit in and, you know, be like a session person or, you know, there's a lot of other, I mean, obviously entertainment fields in L.A. that you can hop on and do other things. And the fact that you're kind of going the more production route totally makes sense for LA was kind of moving in that production route a response to being being in LA and and having more opportunity to do that not particularly I was actually trying to do that in Seattle and I that's actually how I ended up making my last record was I was trying to get into writing (laughs) sub pop does my publishing and they were like hey there's a guy out there you want to write with them. Like there's not too many people out in Seattle who are songwriting. (laughs) So it's like very limited. Like sometimes people will come in on tour, but it's not, it's pretty rare. So like, that's how I got set up with a producer who then we were were like, should we make a record? (laughs) But down here, it's like, everybody's doing it. So it is like you have a bigger pool to draw from and work from and there's so much opportunity and like you're adjacent to so much success. Like I guess like in defining success as like maybe more commercial uh, that, it ever, you know, it does feel like this is where your dreams come true. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it is Hollywood. So it's also in this land of like everything is not real. Nothing's real here. In, in, except for the, I mean, I find people to be real. I found like really great musician friends here and some great people to play with on tours and fun people to work with. But when people are talking about stuff, it is like, well, that's not real though. <laughs> you know? Now that you're a year or two years out of Seattle, how would you contrast the two cities? Like, how would you describe what LA is and how would you describe what Seattle scene is, you know, now that you can step back and reflect on it? I definitely am loving LA. I guess like musically, the stuff you can do here, that like the opportunity that that can come up and meeting people and this, I think almost this common feeling of like, we're so close to our dreams, (laughs) you know, as silly as that is of like, you're just, you know, like I feel like a good perspective is like you're in line 
you know, getting some coffee. And then there's just like a celebrity in front of you getting coffee too, which it just feels like so close. And you're like, this is so close, Mm -hmm. but so far away at the same time. Do you feel like um, LA is a, is a city that is able to support musicians? I do. I think there is a lot of work here. I mean, I think that was like part of maybe the catalyst for me to be like, yeah, let's move to LA was like, um, when I was talking to Sub Pop about writing, they were like, I mean, the opportunities are in LA if that's what you want to do. And it's true. Like people come through here all the time and are like into a writing session or whatever, where it's like, not everyone is in Seattle for a week. (laughs) So the opportunities are a lot less. But it is, it does feel much more like industry, like you are, this is your, this is a business. And where Seattle for me is just, it's like, I don't know how to say this without seeming too trite, but like Seattle's like so much making art for making art's sake, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like, like not necessarily, not that there's not, people don't want to like make a living playing in a band, but I think there's less a little less pressure about it of like, yeah, you can have a job and go be in a band and go on tour and your job's fine with it. As long as you get your shifts covered or whatever it is, I think the support around that kind of thing is really incredible versus LA where it is just a hustle, a constant hustle of like, how am I going to get, how am I going to sell this art to make some money and stay here? And, you know, but I mean, as you reflect on that moment when you were living on Capitol Hill and you're like, oh, it's changing. We're going to have to move over to Beacon Hill, you know, south of the city. I mean, do you feel that kind of same sense in L.A. or was it different in Seattle? Because something that we talk about on this show, Sound and Vision on KEXP, is how um, does the city support its artists here? You know, like we're, we just saw this massive, massive growth in, you know, especially the last five years. Housing prices shot up, rent shot up. And, you know, that, of course, hurt musicians. But now that you've left Seattle for a larger city, that, you know, that that kind of, you know, feeling has been established there for a long, long time. Like traffic in L.A. is terrible. You know, it's expensive to live in L.A., you know, (laughs) everyone's an artist in L.A. I mean, to reflect on Seattle's woes, like, I guess, are they as bad as as we make them seem? (laughs) The scene in Seattle is still there, and I think the community that was there before and people moving there for art is still there and still very supportive. I think it is hard to have something like all of a sudden Amazon exploding and changing the world, which essentially changed Seattle in this way that, you know, like we got... The Capitol Hill was like all of a sudden like the arts district or, you know, the gay neighborhood, which felt like, sure, that's what it was, but it was almost like people go there to take your picture now versus like being there and just making stuff. You know, there's like all the little galleries that used to be there aren't there anymore. And it's like, I know the arts community will find a place to go and musicians are going to find a way to be in Seattle because it's a beautiful city. It's fun. I think it is really supportive. Is there anything that you really, really miss about Seattle now that you've been in L.A. for a while? I will say some of what I miss about Seattle is not is gone now. <laughs> you know, so like I miss it, but there. it's not there anymore. 
but I definitely miss the community up there. I miss like, you know, maybe you don't know everybody's name, but everyone is like at a show is kind of familiar. And I think that's, it's a really cool thing about Seattle being like a bigger city, but still having this kind of like, everybody knows each other kind of a feeling. Did anything surprise you about LA when you moved there? I think how nice people were. <laughs> like mm-hmm. a lot of hellos on the streets. Hey, what's up? A lot of eye contact. A lot of just like surprising like, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. How you doing? <laughs> you know, we're like Seattle's definitely such a like, don't look at me. It's raining. <laughs> that was Jen Champion as part of our series LA versus Seattle, where we explore the differences between the two music scenes. As it seems, more and more Seattle musicians are leaving the city for Los Angeles. is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Since we talked about song lengths earlier in this podcast, we reached out to KEXP listeners and asked what their favorite long song is and why. Here are some responses. All right. Hey, my name is Seth Jensen. I'm from Bothell here in the Seattle area. One of my favorite long songs is Peter the Destroyer by Floater, a local Eugene to Portland band. Um, what makes it my favorite long song is uh, back in 1998, I was living in Eugene. And if anybody remembers on May 21st, that's when Kip Kinkle actually opened fire at Thurston High School, killing uh, a couple of high school kids and injuring many more. Hit a lot of us hard. I had a buddy whose wife actually worked there. And um, that was on a Thursday. On, a following, on the next Friday, I was driving up to uh, Portland, hearing all the news, and everybody was still dry, digesting it. And uh, uh, to see Floater live, and Floater came on the stage, and Rob Linnea, the lead singer, said, you know, this goes out to all the victims from yesterday's shooting. Uh, this song is about needing the courage to make people like you. And they break into Peter the Destroyer, which is not a simple song. It's a very angry song. Uh, and I was very angry and felt alone until then you pause and hear the fact that 800 other people are singing along with it for the same reasons. Hi, this is Chelsea May in West Seattle, Washington, and I chose All My Friends by LCD Sound System because it's a song that kind of feels like a warm hug from a friend when you need it. I first moved to New York eight years ago, and when I first moved there, I didn't know anyone, and that song really got me through a really hard time when I really just had no one to turn to. Eventually, I made a lot of friends who also really loved LCD Sound System, and we all got to be there for their first breakup. Flash forward many years later, I got married last year, and one of the hardest parts of planning our wedding was picking the music that was going to be played throughout it, and we decided at the last second to use All My Friends as Our Very Last Dance. A little worried because it's such a long song, and we didn't want people to kind of give up halfway through the song, but we thought maybe we'll see how it goes. And when the last song started to play and the DJ said, this is the last song, 
And the first notes of all my friends started playing a bunch of our friends from all over the world who had flown in to Asheville, North Carolina, where we got married, joined hands and for some unexplained reason, formed a circle around us, danced in that circle for the entire over seven minute length of the song. And it was that moment that you hope all of the planning and hoping and wishing of going into a wedding is gonna happen and it's perfect. My name is Anzali. I am from Everett, Washington, and my story starts with John Richards. His mom was dying at the same rate as mine, maybe a little ahead of my mother. I would listen to his morning show, hoping she was not suffering, and um, I also was selfishly listening to find out what I was soon going to be facing. He helped me so much because he reported the facts and he never hid his anguish. At the same time, uh, neighbors, relatives, friends, even my mom's case managers would handle her cancer so differently than John did. They'd ask what I'd plan for myself once she got better. But I knew she was dying. John's mom was dying. And we were all kind of dealing with these people living inside these fairy tales made caring for her so much more difficult. But John kept me grounded in reality. And I thank him so much for that. So each time I hear Maggot Brain by Funkadelic, it reminds me that life does not promise smooth outcomes or happiness at the end of any ordeal. It's a song that suffers and it moans, it meanders, it goes down the wrong paths, it gets distracted, and sometimes it even fails. For me, that's life. That, and so this song just represents life. That was uh, extremely powerful. I really appreciate you uh, telling that story and talking about my mother and your mother. Um, you know, it's interesting with Maggot Brain. So we played that yesterday, actually, on the show. It is an incredible song. It clocks in about 10 minutes. Uh, in the guitar solo, if you're not familiar, George Clinton, in his 2014 memoir, he recalled the recording session saying, uh, Eddie Hazel, he said, Eddie and I were in the studio tripping like crazy, but also trying to focus our emotions. He said to him, I told him to play the song like his mother had died, to picture that day, what he would feel, how he would make sense of his life, and how he would take a measure of everything that was inside of him and let it out through his guitar. I knew immediately that he understood what I meant, Clinton wrote. I could see the guitar notes stretching out like a silver web. When he played the solo back, I knew it was good, beyond good. Not only a virtuoso display of musicianship, but also an almost unprecedented moment of emotion in pop music. So she is correct. That song should be connected to your mother and connected to anyone going through anything emotional. It's like the perfect song for her to pick today. And if you have a music-related question you think we should ask on this podcast, you can email us at soundandvision at kexp.org. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's new. I'd also love for more people to be able to discover it. And you can help by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. That does actually help 
other people find this podcast. And if you are really loving this podcast, KEXP and I would really appreciate a one-time $20 donation. You can do that at kexp.org slash sound. And we're going to wrap up the show with the question, why does music matter? This week, we'll hear from Beck. He performed at the Gorge in eastern Washington over the weekend. Here was his answer to why does music matter? It's this expression of sort of a a humanity, you know. It's this, yeah, it's not going to clothe and shelter you, but it's, it, it, in other ways, it's one of these things we've created in our society that, that reminds us something about ourselves, you know. So whether it's like you're listening to Tom Petty or, you know, uh, Selena Gomez or what, or Jimmy Rogers, the yodeling brakeman, you know, it's like <laughs> for everybody, there's, there's some music that, that keeps something in them awake. That was Sound and Vision. Thanks so much for listening.